With Linode, build applications using their simple cloud manager, API, or CLI. Quickly scale up or down with standard VMs, dedicated CPUs, and enterprise-grade GPUs. All with the best price to performance and same pricing across 11 global data centers. They're also people, just like you. You get fast, human support, 24 by 7. So visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number 2, C-L-O-U-D, and get $100 in free credit to try them out. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we're going to be talking about how tech marketing, well, it's not always the greatest, and how we could potentially make technical marketing better. Our guest today is John Meyer. He is host of the John Meyer Podcast and chief content creator at Meyer Media. He's another independent creator, and we really get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts around content creation, but also the need for communication within an organization, uh, especially if you're developing and selling applications and services. Communication was at the hub. It was right in the middle of everything that we were talking about today. Knowing your audience, communicating with them in the way they need to be communicated with, and then understanding other groups within your organization and knowing how they need to be communicated with. Because just because you're an engineer listening to this podcast and you think you're that amazing and all the other people, eh, do they matter? I don't know. They matter. And understanding that they do matter and in what way they matter and communicating with them in a way that respects that becomes super important. Super important. And even if you don't think you're a content creator, there's a pretty good chance you sort of are even internally Mm -hmm. in your company. So bearing these principles in mind is going to bear fruit for you later on. So enjoy this podcast with John Meyer, Chief Content Creator at Meyer Media. Well, John, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're, We're pretty excited to have you here. You are a fellow content creator. That is now your main occupation. And you and I had a, a, an interesting conversation in the lead up to this recording, which was around the idea that tech marketing is not always great. It, it has some problems. <laughs> and so let's start with that, that as our central thesis. Why does tech marketing suck? All right, guys, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Ned, Ethan. It's, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, the the title you had you had to pick a very controversial thing that we're just gonna have to talk about and dive in. I'm like I'm usually the person that kind of shies a little bit away from it because I want it. But tech marketing, I don't want it does suck. But why does it suck? Is because the content fails to engage and is not actually driven to the right audience. Uh, the, don't get me wrong, marketers know exactly what they're doing. They know how to push it out the content. They know how to get it out to all the social media fo- uh, folks. They know how to do top, middle, funnel, and funnel all the leads, but it's actually the content itself is not driven to the right folks, the right audience. Got you. So you, you feel that there might be some kind of disconnect there between the, the folks on the technical side that know their stuff, but don't necessarily know how to talk to the potential customers, and then the marketing side, which knows how to deliver the message, but they need the message in the first place. Correct. So what happens is that the folks that are doing the the traditional marketing, right, they knew how to do all their their content at one point. They created these long form content webinars and, you know, they went through everything. But folks nowadays, look at all the media platforms that we're utilizing. How quickly are they swiping up and scrolling? The content needs to smack them right in the face. 
short, engaging, and get right to the point. And I have a couple of examples I'll share with you in a little bit, and it will really resonate with you on how short form actually engages those that are watching. I mean, just look at you when you go onto like LinkedIn or even TikTok and you're like scrolling as quick as possible going through. Oh, yeah, that was good. It was good. You only stop for a short video. Well, I think you're hitting on something there, John, which is maybe 10 years ago, longer form content would have worked better. But because of the pervasive nature of YouTube and TikTok and all of this short form content, a lot of folks that consume that, most of the planet, our brains have been reprogrammed a bit. It's getting harder and harder to sit through longer form content. And so that short form content, it gets to the point quickly, doesn't waffle on, is going to grab someone's attention, whereas someone who's not we're not programmed for the long form stuff anymore. We don't want to sit through a 45 minute tedious presentation. We want to get to the thing, to the meat of it right now. The average attention span years ago, and you said 10 years ago, it's probably pretty true. It was like eight seconds. I think it's like four now. No yeah. lie. We, I am constantly switching. I'm constantly looking at something different or doing something. I think it's four seconds. You literally have, and I'll even cut that down. You have three seconds a engaging thumbnail, click on it. And the very first like opening line has to be something that everybody's going to be like, oh, I want to watch a little bit longer. If you can get to retain them for one minute, man, that's a huge accomplishment because average viewer duration is, is if you got a, a what is it? Uh, 2.5% or something of a YouTube where the, the engagement is longer, that's the value. Now, now, one other point you made, John, was about the audience like marketers were going after the wrong audience, I think you said. Can you expand on that? All right. So marketers are kind of trying to sell towards the C-level suite, right? They're trying to sell to the people who are going to sign it and buy it. Well, guess what? They're not the ones that are influencing it. It's right. now in the hands of developers and engineers. Yeah. They can go buy it for a astronomically low cost or a high cost, and it doesn't matter. If they're not bought into the product, if they didn't have a say, if they didn't enjoy it, they didn't have the value, and they could not innovate off the product to make their lives easier, guess what? You just bought something that's gonna sit on the shelf and collect dust. That's a really good point. I've been at enterprises or, or done consulting with enterprises where they did. They went out and they listened to the analyst reports and the CEO or the CTO bought some big expensive product and none of the engineers wanted to use it. So they just found their own ways of going around the product. And it just stagnated. It sat there. And what would have been a much better situation was proper marketing to those engineers and then having that bubble up to the CTO. So I think you have to hit it from both sides, right? You can't just do your marketing to the C-class and you can't just market to the developers and engineers. You need awareness across both of those. What if you flip that upside down and said, we're going to go bottom up, right? We're going to go into the developers, the engineers, the practitioners that are on it and have them actually sell to the C-suite because one is bought in at the bottom and they're the ones talking to their manager saying, hey, listen, this is the product. And then the managers are talking to the product owners and the services and saying, you know, this was brought to our attention and they find a lot of value on it. You know what? We should look at it and possibly use it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, John. Um, when you have the engineers and the developers, the users, the consumers of the technology within a business that are the advocates for that technology, all of a sudden you have the people that a business relies upon to, to do business enablement, to make it so that the business can make more money. 
uh, as the ones saying, we should buy this. If we do this, it makes our job better, or it makes our platform more reliable, or it gives us performance in this way, or this capability we didn't have before. And that means you can do this within the business, whatever this is. That's a that's a powerful message there. And that's something I think engineers need to understand too, is the, the power that they have to drive the business is when they are, are involved in those conversations, they can change what's going on in the IT department. Ethan, I think you hit it right there on the head. You said those advocates doing it. Why do you think there are so many developer advocate or relationship roles out there now? Why do you think it's so huge and big is because now they realize that they have to build that community and build that awareness. It takes time to build a trust to a certain product. And once they start using that product, what will happen is now they have an advocate in that company and externally saying, oh my God, you got to check this out. This is pretty cool. Right. It's building that community and the people in that community that have gotten uh, plugged into your product and understand it intimately. And they've now integrated into their daily workflow. That's going to be pretty hard to rip out and replace. And so internally, they become that advocate for you. You still need something to sell. So I've seen this kind of fall <laughs> flat where like the open source version of your product does so much that <laughs> there's no reason to pay for it. Uh, but if you can properly de design and develop your product so the paid version is worth paying for, then those people can be the advocate up to the C-level saying, hey, we should really buy this or you know, purchase the subscription for it. There are a number of open source companies that have paid subscriptions or enterprise or an add-on or a plug-in to it. And the whole thing is you have an advocate talking about the open source, and then you show the value and integration of the paid subscription. And now you have a cross-platform awareness. That you are speaking as a content creator now, but I know you weren't always a content creator, or maybe you kind of were. Maybe you kind of were, but you weren't doing it for yourself necessarily. You were doing it for the organizations you worked for. So I kind of want to back up a little bit and talk about how you got your start developing content and what were your guiding principles behind creating that content for wherever you were? I started creating content one summer working for a quick contract position with Linux Academy. I was just, what I did is I created training material and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And I actually still use the recording software from that day. Now it's a paid subscription, not the same one and licensed by them, but really what I did is I got involved. I, I actually liked the process of going through it. And then from then on, anytime I went through something difficult, I was like, I got to share this. You ever notice that a content creator, when they go through something, they're like, I can't, I can't be the only one that's going into this problem. <laughs> I need to share this with folks. And that's when content starts getting created. Uh, you know, fast forwarding, there was right before or during the pandemic that hit you know, my kids are home. YouTube is actually going, taking off big because everybody's watching it even more and more that they're sitting there. And I was sitting there with my kids and I was like, hey, can you pause that? And I'm like, wow, freaking 36 million views. Oh, <laughs> how many subscribers? I was like, yeah, you know what? You're never going to find me on YouTube. Rule number one, never say never. <laughs> I've, I've got to tell you that. I am, so that's my biggest platform right now and in providing that median and how I created it. Now we can talk about, you know, really how I got more and more involved and how things started. But the, the whole thing behind it is that 
I found a way to have a natural conversation, not only on my podcast, but content creating, of creating short form, engaging videos, things that are right to the point. And to do it, I actually put out my first one and it's still on my YouTube channel because it's a reminder that you start and progress little by little. <laughs> Please don't go and look at no, it. <laughs> I think it had to do with like S3 buckets or something. Oh, Wait, yeah. so what are you covering the on YouTube these days, John? <laughs> so on YouTube right now, it's basically a podcast, natural conversation, pretty much what we're doing now. I would literally click record. In fact, we are recording, but I would click record, share out the video, the conversation that's happening. People and folks like an unscripted conversation. And the other thing to do is I'm an independent, basically a trusted voice in the community that's putting out high quality, engaging videos for demos. Like uh, there's one that I do and I'm an evangelist, a self-proclaimed evangelist for a product called Video Ninja. And if you ever heard of it, it's a basically a, allows you to capture and put your stuff into OBS Studio. And that is very the simplest way to put it. I did a lot of live streaming. The developer, Steve Segwin, who is awesome, uh, I was like, man, you got an awesome product here and it's free. So I'm like, we got to talk about this. So every time he released something, I would capture it. Or I'd put a video. I did a whole series on it. And this was just fun ways to bring back to the community engagement of using a product. Hmm. One of the things you mentioned as part of your content creation process is you are driven to create things when you run into a problem. So is, would you say that's the central driver behind what, how you at least started or how you continue to create that content is by constantly banging your shins on things and then trying to tell other people, there's a thing here that you're going to trip on. I actually do a little bit of both. Well, when I first started out, it was problems that I would run into. An example, years ago, and uh, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago, actually, AWS didn't have a configuration for SSO sign-in. You had to do a, a command line reference, grab it and export out the key into Linux, and that's how you used it for 12 hours. Well, I went to do the same exact thing a year later. I'm like, wow, I, I, know, I know how to do this. And it didn't work. And so I had to look it up and they actually have a SSO integration now. You can run a command and it will do it automatically for your key. I was like, wow, this is huge. I just saved myself like five, six hours. And then my key would you know, reset. It, this new method opens up the browser, exports the actual key and allows you to you know, do all your commands through the CLI. I had to share it. I, I was like, I, I literally created a three minute video, slapped it together, put all the highlights and pushed it out there. I was like, this is pretty cool. So it's things that I'll run into. But if I'm starting to hear a, a number of things in the community, I'm like, wow, we, we need to bring a little bit more of an engagement to this or awareness to this product or the value of this or things that I'm hearing out there. I just want to go around and play with it. And then I want to create something and I want to get it out there as quick as possible. John, I want to ask you about uh, communicating with other groups that are in the organization. So as a, as a young engineer, this would describe me very well. I would look at the engineering team and our all-powerful, mighty wizard-like knowledge. We're the, we're the muscles of the organization, right? And sales and marketing, it's like, um, I don't know, the snot, let's say, of the organization. Something like that. <laughs> it's there. You have to have it. It's part of you. But, uh, I, you know, again, as a young engineer, I would look down on that. But then over time, you know, you develop relationships with these folks and you find out, oh, they're actually doing a lot of things that 
I surely could not do. That's not who I am. And uh, they have a, they serve a needful function. Uh, they're competent. They do a good job and all of that. So w- where is this disconnect where you've got this young engineer mindset kind of looking down on sales and marketing? And how do you get over that and then bridge the divide so that there's better communication? I think the very first thing is it takes building trust. It takes communication and that you're there ultimately helping it. I know working in it. And in fact, by the way, I never thought I'd be in marketing. So I have to tell you that I was like, I am going to be hands-on IT. I'm going to be the engineer guy, right? Doing all this stuff and, you know, look where I'm at now. And I think that kind of gives me a, I don't know, one up, right? So I'm always aware that I was an engineer and now I'm in marketing. Now I know how to communicate with both teams because I know what drives them. I know what the value is. So if you you are marketing, right? And you want to engage with that engineer. You have to talk their language. You have to present them something that they want to geek out on and share, right? They're okay. They're, they're highly valued on a certain product or a feature. And they're like, I want to share this with you guys. Let's do it. Start putting out the stuff that they're talking about because you as a marketing, you as in sales are going to, it's going to be big for you, right? You're going to be able to use it not only in promotion, sales enablement, internal, external, customers, whatever it is, they know what they're doing. And hopefully they have their ears to the ground for their for their customers for a constant feedback loop. There's another element for it for me personally with, uh, was developing a respect for what those folks do within the organization. Um, I didn't have that as a, as a young engineer, you know, like, oh, we're, we're powerful with all of our certifications and all these crazy skills that we have to have to make IT go. And then you look at sales and marketing and go, they write stuff and kind of string a customer along, hoping to hook them. And it's just all like, eh, it doesn't work for me. And then you realize <laughs> what they actually do, building relationships and helping to explain what technology does and looking for business opportunities and all the rest of that kind of personal relationship work and opportunity finding that as an engineer, their brains are wired differently from yours as an engineer. And until you understand that what they do is something you can't do, but is utterly necessary, if you don't have that respect for that function, you're never going to get along. I think it starts there with, uh, with that respect. And then when you've got that, you can do like you were saying, John, you live in both worlds now. You're on the technical side and the marketing side. And so you kind of have had to learn to speak both languages. They're solving different problems than what an engineer solves. And when you're in a situation of uh, marketing, now you need to take a technical product, something that's got a value proposition that can be difficult to communicate and learn to communicate it in an effective way that makes sense to a business, that's a super hard thing uh, to be able to do that. But uh, again, going back to my initial point, it does start with that respect. You have to speak the language of coming from an engineer to marketing. I was, I had the reversal role, you know, I, I had to learn the marketing language, Mm. right? So the terms, how to provide value to a product, to use those key things that would ultimately attract those who are, were interested in it. But what I brought to it is from the engineering side, I was able to grab those keywords that engineers to developers, practitioners who are going to use the product. And when they see the value, you know, like in marketing, you know, highly engaged, uh, trusted, all those are keywords for the marketing, but take those to a developer and engineer. And they're like, no, tell me the benefits of the product. Like you tell me, I integrate with uh, CICD. 
All right, great. Hey, what about Jenkins? You know, you start using yeah. those technology keywords. Now you're speaking both language and you can grab the attention of both, not only the, you know, the person who's buying it, but also the engineers who are going to use it. When I was working for a consulting group, uh, I, when I first started there, I had that very low opinion of marketing and sales. I didn't like interacting with them. I didn't... <laughs> I really look down on them. Like, why are you even necessary? I'm the one doing all the hard work here. I'm the one that's actually out there in the field implementing this stuff. The muscle you're, net. You're the muscle. I'm the muscle, right? And it wasn't until I moved into a, a, a role where I was more on the pre-sales side of things and solution development where the light bulb really went on. And it was like, oh, Without sales, I don't have work. Like people yes. aren't just magically appearing at the door demanding that I implement an exchange upgrade. Like somebody has to be out there talking to the customers and, and selling them on the services we have. And someone needs to develop those services and the marketing materials around them. Oh, now I get it. Now I understand there's this larger picture. But I really, my first few meetings with the marketing department really showed me how little I knew. And and like you mentioned, the language thing, they were speaking a completely foreign language. And as an engineer minded person, I wanted to dissect that language and understand how it was being used in the same way I would if I was learning a new product or, or you know, application that I needed to implement. So what does it mean to be to have this funnel and top of the funnel and middle of the mm -hmm. funnel and all that kind of jazz? And what does it mean, these terms they're using for creating content and having all the key features and the personas that you're marketing against? Like, what is that? What's a persona? Uh, I found it fascinating when initially I was like, oh, marketing's just gross and I hate it. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if there was a question there, but. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many comments. I'm like, wait a second. All right, so pre-sales. Uh, I have a huge respect for pre-sales after being in that role for a number of years. The hard work, the things that go into it. And I was the same one with marketing. I'm like, marketing, why? What is it? What are they? Why do you need marketing? And I've come to a great respect for all roles. Everybody has a specific role in the organization. And if we all work together cohesively, we're going for the same goal. Ideally, yeah, <laughs> in a well-functioning organization. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, we're not uh, blog, We're not saying, oh, well, they're not helping. Pre-sales uh, sucks or, I'm sorry, engineering, man, you're not listed to the customers. And then marketing is like, you're not going to the right customer. In a well-functioning organization, marketing is driven from the engineering features and releases that are ultimately talking to the customers who are in. And you can actually follow this backwards instead of doing the full cycle where it's going from pre-sales from the customer you're talking to. And the reason they got it is from marketing. John, let's talk about your content uh, strategy again. There's a comment you made earlier about having very short form video since you do you do a lot of video work. And you mentioned even two to three minutes as a, as a demo of something, which feels to me awfully tight, man. Like uh, for YouTube stuff that's demo, I was thinking more like, oh, 10 minutes would be about right. 10 minutes or less was kind of my, has been my rule of thumb. But you're you're really aggressive at two to three. Is that, do you really think that's the place to be? I think that's the place we're all going to be shortly. Here's what's happening. If you got a 10 minute video, look at the average viewer duration or the retention of it. What are they doing? They're scrubbing that video for exactly what they need, the value out of it. You can take that 10 minute and break it up into three, two to three minutes or something. That is the value. What you have to do is 
you have to know your audience, who you're targeting that content for. Do they need a pre-video to that? Then you need to create that going into it and be comfortable with being wrong a little bit in the video or somebody coming into it and commenting, well, you should have talked about this. Oh, you should have talked about that. You know what? You're right. And then you built some more content because somebody gave you feedback on what you're trying to build. Hmm. Two to three minutes. All right. I got to give you this example. And this is for both of you. Now, I know I'm a podcaster, so I don't want to flip the script here a little bit. But here's a question. And it has nothing to do exactly what like we're, we're doing podcasts or anything, but you're searching Google for something. You need to find an issue, an answer to a problem you're having, right? You put into Google and you find a 30 minute video and you're scrubbing that video until you find your actual answer, right? You know, you're scrubbing it out and you're just, I'm, I'm out of here. And you start searching and you will search for a two to three minute video. You will spend 30 minutes searching for a two to three minute video before you actually watch that 30 minute video in, in its entirety. Am I wrong? I think you're touching on an interesting divide between people who prefer to read and people yeah. who prefer video. And I think I don't want to speak for Ethan, so I'll just speak for myself. I'll use my I statements here. I prefer reading when it's an issue where I need to figure out how to do something versus watching a video. But I think that's a generational thing. I think newer generations that are coming up now prefer that short form video, whereas I can skim a blog post really easily and go, okay, there's the actual error I'm getting. Okay, uh, here's the section that talks about why. And I can, it takes me two to three minutes to find it. Whereas now I think they would, the newer generation probably prefers a video that expresses the exact same content, but wants to do it, but they prefer that visual format. Have you seen that kind of divide or is that something you, that rings true to you? I want to know what Ethan's take on that is first. What do, what do you prefer, <laughs> Ethan? Well, it's mixed. It depends on what it is that I'm consuming, what the problem is I'm trying to solve. And also what I'm going for. There's a difference between educational content and entertaining content. And the world we're in, sometimes it's a bit of both, where you're trying to be a little bit entertaining and trying to be educational at the same time. So it can be, I don't know that there's any one right answer. That is, uh, okay. And I've also seen some creators that are beginning to do both. Um, I was so, going to ask uh, you, what about entertaining that is educational? Well, yes, yes, that, but but both I also mean, well, they'll write a blog that explains a thing. And if you want to see it, um, they'll have created an accompanying video as well. That's rare, but I have seen that happen. Um, now, to, to go back to what Ned was saying, where he'd prefer to sit and read something. Yeah, that tends to be where I'm at. I tend to to read because I'm looking for a bit of nuance. I don't, it's not always a how-to video that I'm looking for where click here, click here, type this command and you know, off you go, you've done the thing. I am looking for some copy, some text that is going to explain to me why I'm doing what I'm doing. You can get that in a video as well, but it tends to be the talking head part of the video that can be the, the least engaging because you want to see the screen and the screen cap that's showing you the thing and, you know, and all of that. Um, so I do like uh, written format, but I see the value in video as getting to the point more quickly for certain things than written can. And that can be especially true if it is a configuration style video. You can write a blog that's got a bunch of screenshots in it or has um, you know text from command line drawn out. Okay, well, you can show that just as effectively as the video, maybe more so because it's just there and it's more of a recreation of what you're going to be doing in real life rather than looking at these snapshotted pictures that are embedded in a blog. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I guess where I'm headed is, I don't think it's a one size fits all. And I don't know that I necessarily have a preference of one versus the other all the time. It all depends on what I'm looking for. An example I always use is changing a spark plug on your lawnmower, right? I don't need a I don't need a blog to tell me and walk me through step one, step two, step three. I need the video, a two to three minute video. And by the way, I had to do this. And I was searching for that very short one. What I do, and I actually agree with you guys on video versus text. When I'm when I'm hard coding and I'm jumping in there, there might be a specific area that I'll slap in and I'll find the blog and it'll tell me about it. But then I'm having trouble because the blog didn't fully explain how it went through some things. And then I found a video that actually was key search optimized, right? And what I mean by that is start taking your YouTube videos. And I'm, I'm going to give away a secret here that I work on and do because it's actually no secret. You can put chapters in your YouTube videos. You can start yeah. speaking certain keywords that will come up when it does captions. What happens is Google says, oh, you said this error message or this is on yours. I think this is the part of the video you're looking for. Now I've taken a two to three minute video and I hit that exactly on it. And now I gave it to you in one minute, right? Mm. Or I can put a bunch of these into a series as long as they're chapterized and Google will drop those in as if they were two to three minute videos. Um, oh, I'm looking for the quick engagements that everybody wants, but I want to give you information. I think following it up with a blog that has the video attached or integrated into it is also key and that you convert it to text so people can search for it, that it will pop up. Right. That conversion to text is a lot easier now, especially as far as YouTube goes, it will auto caption it for you. And yep. so I think that caption is included in their search index, at least. Um, if you have a script, even better, but also that means writing a script and then it sounds like you're reading a script a lot of the time. That's that's not great for anybody. <laughs> if you're reading a script and I can tell you're reading a script, uh, probably stop watching. Because if I, I, I've watched like so many videos on how to were content creating, my editor that I'm using, and maybe a certain feature that I want to like on. And when they're just talking to me, I don't mind the ums, the as, and I, you get better at that. I don't judge people for it, but I like the information. I like you coming across in a natural way because you had the issue or you found it. There's so many uh, editing videos that I found that are one to two minutes. Perfect. I need to get this done because it takes me long enough to edit a video. I, n- I don't have much more time to do it. I'm putting the podcast on pause to introduce you to sponsor Linode. You could cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines, developing, deploying, and scaling your modern applications faster and easier. In fact, when I was looking to migrate my WordPress hosting, I ended up picking Linode because it had the best price at the performance level I was looking for, and I've never looked back. The performance is there for me when my latest Terraform-related post drops And I know if something goes wrong, Linode offers 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. You get to talk to like a real person the whole time. And while Linode is based in my hometown of Philly, they have data centers across the world, all with the same simple and consistent pricing model. And I do mean simple. You shouldn't need a team of financial engineers to understand your cloud bill, and with Linode, you won't. So whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. 
And you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Day2 Cloud. You can find all the details at linode.com slash day2cloud. That's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D. And it's not just Linux VMs. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you could use that $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. As they like to say, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D, and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. I want to shift the conversation back to kind of what we were talking about in terms of that disconnect between the, the marketing and the engineers. And this is really specific to organizations that are creating products they want to sell, right? Having that in-house know-how of, of managing the disconnect between the two is, is pretty difficult. So what, what have you seen or what are you doing personally to, to help out with that disconnect to bring together those two parties and have them see eye to eye? Having a conversation is very easy to do. It, it's very tough in our current environment, how we're doing a lot of things virtually. We used to go on site a lot. But what I'm doing is having a conversation one-on-one -on -one with the teams or the person or the people in the teams, not even the manager, those who are hands-on doing it and understanding what their problem is, what are understanding their product and services. An example that I worked with just a, a company where I, as a evangelist for them, right, I worked not only with the product marketing team, right, and I also worked with the product team and the engineering team. I knew what engineering was building. I knew what the roadmap was going on. We had a weekly sync. We said, hey, listen, here's what we're building. Here's what's already coming out this Friday. Here's two weeks to get some content out the door. And we had a two-week life cycle that's going on. It takes time, just like any cultural shift or change. If you have an older company, this type of process will take a while to actually integrate because you have to realize that you're not working against each other. That marketing is not all that bad. That product does like engineering and they will swip, shift them things around where it'll pivot really quickly and engineering be like, I didn't finish this project. How am I supposed to start this? <laughs> so you will get those. But if you start communicating with each other, it's great. Younger teams like startups and everything, they're already the same team half the time. Product is engineering, engineering is product, and they're already on the same meeting. So they understand it. It's easier to get involved and actually build a cohesive life cycle for elevating their brand using like social influencers in tech, uh, talking about it as an evangelist, developer advocates, whatever names you want to call them now, but they are people that are integrated within all the teams. So I heard you call out the role developer advocate or developer DevRel is kind of the, the umbrella term for a lot of yep. these different positions that have existed out there. Is that something that every company should have, even if they're not the type of company that's shipping a, a product or, or an application, is there a place internally for someone to act as a developer advocate or work in developer relations inside of the company? I don't, personally, I don't think there's not a place. Everybody should have one or they already have one, but they don't realize it. They have internal <laughs> advocates already talking about how great this product is. There's usually somebody in the company that is socially involved, right? They're posting something where they're at, posting wherever they're going. I actually can't think of too many companies. I'm sure there's some out there that 
should not have a developer advocate and they lay low a little bit or whatever. But in most companies, whether it's tech, uh, healthcare, even banks, right? I actually just saw a role for a well-known bank for a developer advocate and evangelist. For a mm. bank. Mm. <laughs> well, they, I would say, especially for a bank, they must have massive internal development teams that need to talk to each other or have someone that's championing what they're doing. You know, I'm sure one team has APIs and they want the other teams to use those APIs and shift away from maybe, you know, whatever they were using before. It's probably a mainframe sitting somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> you need that person. I think that everybody needs that person, whether it's an outside person that comes in and helps elevate the brand, the product or service awareness, or tapping those who are already in the company, right? We, we talked about the relationship between engineering and product and marketing, but what if you had a person who was already in the company, who's talking great about the product, who loves it, who is very active and wants to be social about it. If you took the, that person and you say, hey, listen, We'd like to test out and do the, the, the following. You basically have uh, tribal knowledge, you have awareness, and they probably have trust within all the groups. That's the type of person you need to elevate it. If you don't have that person, having somebody work directly with your company. So something that I do is I will work directly with you and know your product, your service, uh, understand your brand and awareness, and make sure that we are reaching the right audience. Hmm. Well, you get into the problem of independent verification. You, you, you as the, if you're marketing your own product, of course, it's awesome. It's going to be super awesome. You're going to be, you know, just filled with adjectives and adverbs about how awesome your product is. And no one believes it when it comes from the, the, the corporate mouth. Uh, I've seen a lot of corporations, uh, vendors that are making tech products, they'll start their own podcast and then they give up after a while because no one's listening. Why? Because it lacks the authenticity. Of course, of course you're going to tell me in your podcast, oh, amazing, all your stuff is in do tech marketing. Of course, of course. I, I Why would I listen to that? I don't trust you. So how how do you, um, well, John, you're an independent you know, creator of content, right? And, and, and okay. And, and I am, and, uh, and Ned is as well. Uh, we're actually, we're actually on a zoom call here, uh, looking at each other and John nodded when I said, you're an independent creator, right? <laughs> so yes, he is. Well, <laughs> I was, right. yeah. <laughs> oh, first of all, I forgot that it was zoom. <laughs> Please put this in the highlight reel because this is going to be perfect. <laughs> but anyway, John, my question is this, how, how do, um, how do you and and the rest of us that are in this world, we're we're independent. Why should people be trusting us to talk about a customer's or a vendor's uh, products as opposed to you know the vendor themselves? How do we get that independent validation? How do we give that independent validation for uh, some vendor that wants us to talk about their stuff? Let me talk about the person who's doing the podcast within their company. The reason they fall flat is because they either a script it, they don't want to look bad. Right. So they will avoid all problems that they ever had and say, we are awesome. We fix everybody's problems and not tell you about your own. And they are not vulnerable. They do not open up about not only being personal. Right. So a podcast, whether video or audio like this one, um, if they don't open up and share a little bit of personal that they messed up, they did something wrong. You know, they had a learning experience outside. Right. That that's that natural conversation that comes in. By the way, John, I'm, I, I did paint with a pretty broad brush there. Not all vendor podcasts suck. You know, so for example, um, the <laughs> HashiCast comes to mind. 
uh, HashiCorp's yeah. uh, podcast. That's one where they're not talking about HashiCorp products all the time either. They're talking about industry stuff and they're coming from a perspective of being very knowledgeable. They see a lot of what's going on out there. And yes, HashiCorp tech comes up now and again, but that's not the focus. Today we're going to talk about Vault. It, no, it's not. That's not really what the thrust <laughs> of the podcast is at all. They're having more interesting and thought leading kinds of conversations. That's successful when so many other podcasts that are out there just just don't they because of what you said they're not vulnerable or it really just comes across as a you know long-form marketing message yeah it, my comment is not meant for everyone right there are podcasts that do successful by the the way HashiCorp, great podcast uh caught a number of them uh good shout out for you guys but there are a number that will succeed. Why do they, they succeed? Because they understand their audience. They understand what they're trying to do. And they're not trying to push a product down your throat. Every single conversation. Uh, add some thought leadership to it. That has nothing to do with your product. But they find the value of your conversation. You don't even have to talk about your product on a podcast. That's the cool part. Because they'll know your name. They'll associate it with it. They'll find you out on social and be like, wow, this guy's pretty cool. And they built the trust and awareness. That's exactly what I do as an independent. Now, when I work with certain brands and talk to, about their product or their services, I get to pick and choose. The reason I pick and choose is because I don't want to be associated with a brand that is just trying to get their name out there and just wants to pay the money to do it. But also, when I first talk to somebody in order to actually get them on as a client, I actually decide on the person and not the product first, mm -hmm. right? The person behind it, I think I'm a pretty good judge of character within the first two to three minutes. I can tell either A, we're going to have an awesome podcast, right? It's yeah. not going to fall flat yeah. and I'm not going to have to drag you along for the conversation. Yep. But I can also tell that you are thoughtful, that you're vulnerable, that you shared something with me. And that's how you work as a company. Now, then we can talk about your brand and what the information you want to get out there and what is the value is it for others and who you're trying to get to. Those are some of the methods that I use and they've been successful. I've said no to people just because they're like, hey, listen, I think it'd be awesome to do a podcast. I want to talk about my product. Um, all right. And that's where the conversation starts to go down a little bit is like, what? how about not your product? How about let's talk about you as a person and let the audience get to know you and your product will come along for the ride. Yeah, I, I don't have any. Well, okay. So I'll disagree a little bit there in that when you are an independent brand that is talking about a product, there's a certain context in which that conversation is happening. So yeah, is the personality that is presenting about that product interesting uh, or not? Is that a thing? They, they got to have some presentation skills for sure to communicate effectively in the medium. If they don't uh, speak very well, they're very nervous, they're very anxious. The listener doesn't want to hear that conversation because it makes them anxious and nervous, you know, along with uh, the guests that just, and then people will tend to tune that out. But I don't feel like it's a crime to have a discussion about product and that's, you know, set it up effectively. Don't have it be this, uh, you know, pulpit pounding the gospel of my product, you know, and screaming forth about how glorious it is. No, let's have a real conversation about it to an engineer that knows there's going to be uh, uh, bumps and wrinkles and this thing's not perfect. It does what, it, and it doesn't do everything. It does some things and it doesn't do other things. And you haven't got integration with Azure yet. You've only figured out AWS so far and, you know, and so on. You can have that kind of a conversation and have it be authentic and real and helpful. 
um, and not have it come across as a product, product, product pushing down someone's throat. If you get the tone right and you get the questions right and the vendor that is representing their product is willing to be honest about what's actually going on. And you can tell the difference. Sometimes questions that you ask, the answers are somewhat evasive, you know, shall we say. And people pick up on that stuff. Just, you know, be just be straightforward about what's happening and rep your product in a way that engineers want to hear. And I think that's okay, John. I don't think we're disagreeing, actually. I think that is exactly what we're looking for and exactly the folks that I'm talking to and exactly the folks who are listening or actually watching the episodes. Now, it's not all just a you know type of a podcast. Uh, the other things to do is bringing actual customers from that brand, right? So we're talking about their case study. We're talking about the problem they have, the solution, why they chose it. But mm -hmm. I want people to open up and say, you know, this brand has all these they didn't have this, but they did listen to me and it has been added to their roadmap or they see yeah. the value in it. Tell me that they don't have it. Don't go around the thing and say, well, it's one of the things that they have and it's great. Or don't sell me they have something and they really don't. People are going to see that. You will say yes to an answer and move on. Yeah, they're going to know that it doesn't have those full on capabilities. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually counseled certain folks that were coming on and they're like, oh, I don't want to answer that question because we don't have that feature yet. And I'm like, no, you do. You exactly do. You want to say, we don't have this feature yet. It's coming. We're yep. working on it. Or or we decided we don't want to support that platform because reasons. Don't avoid it. You just say right out what, what it is and what you're thinking about it because that is the honest thing. And engineers need to know that stuff. Don't imply yep. that you do all the things when you don't. It's much more real when you talk about what you don't do as well as what you do do. Okay, mic drop. Sorry. Yeah. I actually agree with you on all aspects. So I really didn't have much more to add for that. <laughs> well, let's shift it a little bit to, uh, again, that, that level of communication that needs to happen. We've been talking almost exclusively around outbound communication to potential customers and potential clients uh, of a company that's producing a product. Uh, but there's also the need, especially for a team that's developing a product internally, to convince the other people inside the company that their idea is a good one. Either they're trying to get people to use it internally, or they're trying to get the sales and marketing machines excited and make them believe in the value of that product. Uh, especially the sales team, because if the sales team doesn't believe your product is worthwhile, thinks it's crap, they're not going to sell it, right? Because they have to maintain their relationships with their customers. So what are some ways to go about uh, getting the message out internally um, and doing it effectively with especially the sales and marketing teams? Want to know why sales sometimes, and I'm not saying all times, does not believe in the product or the feature that you're releasing because engineers are like, oh, guys, I got to show you this cool thing is because their customers don't need it. They didn't hear a single customer who said want it, right? Or are gonna use it. You have to tell and share with sales what the product you're building or the feature you're building on the customer solution that you're actually building for. So if they have, an example is this, you have a salesperson who said my customer needs feature A and then another one that said the same thing and they start getting plus ones all over the place and they start building that feature. You have just built a relationship from engineering 
to sales, vice versa, because they built something that their customers want. Now you built sales as an advocate for this feature for others. Hey, listen, let me talk to you about a thing that we just built for one of our customers. And in fact, a number are using it. You got to you got to check this out. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So they're actually getting that feedback loop. What has to happen is engineering and sales, you do like launch and learns for, everybody's heard of those. You train them on some of it, you talk about it, but you don't do it for the entire hour. You make it a conversational piece, a chat that's happening. Here is the feature. Spend the first five, 10 minutes and then start letting them ask some questions on the feature and then hang out with them for a little bit. And I know we're all busy, so make it a 30 minute, whatever it has to be. And then those two to three minute videos that I was talking about, are key for sales enablement. If a sales guy can say, hey, listen, after a call with a customer, here's what you were talking about and drops them a video, because guess what? They might not read the blog post, right? They might not get to that, but they might get to a two to three minute video from that email. They'll click on it and just tell them in the email, hey, here's a three minute uh, video on the exact same feature, but we do have long form. Here's a blog on this, that we how we implemented it for a customer or a case study that's going on. You have just created a dual factor, internal, external piece of content or artifact for folks. I I want to back up on two things that you mentioned there. One is the lunch and learn. And I've been a member of many uh, lunch and learn. And the most effective ones only spent half or less of the time talking about the actual product and yammering on and going through slides. And a lot of it was just the open conversation. And the most productive ones were the ones that had open conversation between yep everyone in the room over lunch and less about that product. And if, you know, I think those two to three minute bite-sized things are perfect for the sales team. Who's like, Oh, what did that feature do? Oh, I can just quick watch this video and remind myself before I go into a, a meeting or as, as I'm preparing the, the day before for a meeting, having those little bite-sized things for them to just quickly get up to speed on something, uh, they're not going to retain everything that happened from the lunch and learn. So focus on the conversation and the communication at when you're all together in the same room or in the same zoom, and then save the actual like content for those bite-sized chunks later that they can, you know, consume as needed. Let me ask you this question. How many meetings have you gone into where they clicked record and it was an hour long recording and you never watched it again? Nobody watches those. <laughs> it's exactly. And you know they don't because you put a passcode on it and you don't send out the passcode and you try to see how many people are going to ask you, what's the passcode to this meeting? Because I'm going to watch it again. That's the time you know that it's you need to stop recording these hour-long meetings. But if you have these short two to three ones from a demo you did or hands-on a feature, yeah, there's there is a place for long form demos. There's a place for all of that. I'm not shying away from those. In fact, I still see the value of them. But if you take those two to three minutes and the sales guys have those, those are the ones he's going to review before going into a customer conversation. Right. Those are the appetizers, the amuse-bouche, if you will. Yes. And, and if you need the full entree, it also needs to be there. But a lot of people are going to be content with just, you know, picking and choosing uh, during the cocktail hour, if you are. Yep. Uh, stretching this metaphor. I don't know how far it's going. Wow. <laughs> You're making me hungry, Ned. <laughs> Oh, me too. Ooh, uh, well, I, we are coming up on time, John, but this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, a lot around just, uh, you know, what's the process for building content? What's the best way that people want to consume it? Um, what are some key takeaways for you? Some things that you want to make sure get across in your messaging? 
One of the things that I really want to share with folks, whether they're talking with me or they want to build their own content for it, is make sure you're building content and valuable content. You you feel the value in it and you want to share it out there. Always measure yourselves with creating the content, but know your audience. Mm. Know who you're sharing it with, right? If you're sharing it with the engineering folks, uh, make sure that it is technical and you're bringing value to them. If you're sharing with the sales folks, Maybe you need to be technical with them, but at a high level, or you have a cross-platform that you can share them, not only the sales version, but the technical version, because some like to dive into it. And you have to enjoy what you're doing. If you are creating content, podcasts, and all that other stuff, and you wonder why you're not getting a lot of views, is because you might not be enjoying it. Change it up. Mm. Yeah, use that creativity and, and follow your passion. I think that's... Yep. That's a huge part of it. It certainly has been for me. And as soon as I switched to things that I was more passionate about, it comes through in the recordings, 100%. Yep, I can tell. All right, man. Well, uh, if people want to engage with you, if they want to know more about like your new independent venture that you've launched, uh, where can they find you? Where should they go? All right, well, guess what? You can find me everywhere for John Meyer. On Twitter, it's at underscore John Meyer. LinkedIn, it's John Meyer. Also my website. John Meyer. You can find me on Instagram, John Meyer Podcast, and newly on TikTok. Yes, I have just made some TikTok videos at John Meyer Podcast. Wow. Okay. Congratulations for joining the TikTok army. I am I'm I'm still a dinosaur and I'm hanging on to my YouTube. Despite I thought I was a dancing dinosaur. skills, Ned, despite your dancing skills. <laughs> I find a TikTok uh, I bread all the time and, and me making hot sauce. If we're being honest. <laughs> I never thought I would be on TikTok, but a lot of TikTokers and people suggested I do it. I did one. It's 24 seconds of my podcast gear. And I got 530 views. I was like, right. I like this. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> awesome. John, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You know, if you have suggestions for future shows, we really do want to hear them. I've had a couple people contact me recently with ideas or to be a guest on the show, and they had some pretty interesting and compelling stories. So look forward to those coming down the pike in the not too distant future. But you could be one of those people suggesting those things. You can hit us up on Twitter. We monitor day two cloud show, or you can hit up the form on my website, nedinthecloud.com. Hey, sponsors out there, potential sponsors, vendors out there, if you have a cool cloud product like we've been sort of describing this whole episode and you want to reach out to an audience of IT professionals, you could become a day two cloud sponsor. You'll reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve, and maybe your product solves their problem, but they're never going to know unless you tell them about your amazing solution, and you can do that with us. If you want to know more, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship and get all the info there. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 